0: Hi there microbiology people, this is Dr. B talking microbiology, specifically today the eukaryotes of microbiology, which corresponds to chapter 5 of the OpenStax textbook. This is a chapter that I find very interesting, but it can be also challenging because of this extraordinary diversity of this group. You know we have species with all kinds of interesting life cycles, interesting morphology, the way they look, nutritional needs. So while we are I would say more familiar with bacterial and virus viral diseases, infectious diseases and in general more diseases are caused by viruses and bacteria than by these microscopic eukaryotes, some of these major diseases with a lot of public health importance such as malaria are caused by eukaryotic microbes also and i have mentioned this before the uh, video game and tv show the last of us has brought more public awareness which i'm grateful to the fact that fungal infections although they are not as widespread and as known as let's say bacterial or viral infection, they can be extremely dangerous. One reason why um, fungal diseases are not as widespread uh, than compared to others is that they usually tend to affect um, patients that are immunocompromised or elderly, or for some other reason, their immune systems are not as robust as those in healthy people. But still, you know, it is, um, they happen. And because of their symptoms, are so similar to, you know, any other bacterial viral infection in many cases. So once we get to the respiratory system, we'll be talking about pneumonias. And most people will think about bacterial and viral pneumonias first, and only later will they consider, you know, a f- different kind of infection, like a fungal infection. Or if you have a person with an asthma attack, again, you will be thinking of asthma. And later, maybe you you will start thinking about, oh, it could be something else. So again, fungal infections are a growing threat. And another reason why they can be very dangerous is that they are eukaryotic. We will see once we get to antimicrobial agents in a later chapter, that it's much easier to find um, drug targets in prokaryotic cells or against prokaryotic cells than against eukaryotic cells. And what I mean by drug target is that any medication you want to take against a microbe, a microbial infection, should damage the microbe as much as possible, but not damage the uh, the human cells because prokaryotes are different in many uh, ways and we have talked about it during prokaryotic cell structure chapter it is easier to find structures or processes that are unique to prokaryotes so we can you know develop antibiotics or other drugs that will target only prokaryotic cell structures and processes This is not the same case for eukaryotic cells, which are much more similar to ours, because they are prokaryotic. So the the range of differences is much narrower, just because their cells are more similar to ours. So uh, without further ado, let's get started with um, the group that we call the, the protist and I do want to say that this is not a real uh, taxonomic uh, category. You know, it's more like a historical term to use informally to refer to a diverse group of microscopic eukaryotic um, organisms. And if you ask me, well, why is it not a you know, formal taxonomic term? It's because in order for, you know, to, to decide that there is some kind of taxonomic category, the organisms in that group should have some kind of shared evolutionary origin. So in fact, if you look at the most current or the current, um, you know, evolutionary maps of where eukaryotes or how eukaryotes evolve, you're going to see proteins kind of scattered all around. But it comes handy to, you know, have this group, the protist, And then also among the protist we can talk about animal-like, uh, plant-like, and fungus-like protists. So this way we can talk about, you know, animal-like would be the protozoans, plant-like are algae, and fungus-like are like water molds. And why is that? Because they are really different. So for example, algae are kind of like plants. They can do photosynthesis. Uh, On the other hand, algae can be both unicellular and multicellular. Protozoans are always unicellular. I may have mentioned before that they are considered some of the most complex unicellular organisms. So beyond those generic um eukaryotic organ as we have talked about we are going to find all kinds of special structures in protozoans and something that does uh, apply to a protozoans that they do not do photosynthesis in contrast to algae they are non-photosynthetic so for that reason they are like animal-like Regarding a protozoan, again, they are very diverse in their environment, so some of them are aquatic, some are terrestrial, some are free-living, other parasitic, so it, again, they, they can present very complex life cycles. In fact, there are some protozoans that can be beneficial, although we, are, we tend to be more familiar with those that cause diseases. Now, regarding life cycles, we can talk about the, um, let's say, the the feeding and growing stage. And this is called the trophozoite. So this is the, um, the stage when they feed on small particles of food. Kind of, they can eat bacteria, for example. And many or some types of protozoan just live in that stage. But some of them can become what it's called a cyst and a cyst is kind of the eukaryotic equivalent to endospore in the sense that these develop in in stages where the environmental conditions are not very good and the, so the cyst is a cell but it's going to have a protective wall and kind of uh, as bacteria become endos or form endospores to the process of sporulation the cyst um the, the process while a cyst is formed from a trophozoite is called encystment an and similar to um you know the germination of spores existment so this is uh with a y e x c y s t m e n t so existment is the um formation or the return to uh, the trophozoite stage um, when the environmental conditions are more favorable. Regarding um, reproduction, again, it can be very diverse. There are, um, you know, some protozoans that produce sexually and others reproduce sexually, and some are able to do both. How do they do the asexual reproduction? Well, sometimes it can be binary fission, just they do uh, in bacteria, but it can also uh, do what's called budding. And in case of budding, and the most typical um, image you have is yeast, which are not protozoans, but you may have seen the picture when you have a, this big cell and a little cell kind of budding out of the cell. And then there's something called schizogony, And this is basically a multiple cell division. So the nucleus of the cell divides multiple times and then the cell divides into many smaller cells. And I'm not even going into how complicated those stages are. Regarding sexual reproduction, um, so in general, in biology, Asexual and sexual reproduction has to do with playing the cards um, of, natu- of evolution when you know conditions change. So asexual reproduction in general is very simple. You just need one cell, and then that cell will divide in one way or another and just make a new progeny. And if everything goes fine, then you know that those. Progeny cells are going to be the same as the original cell. In sexual reproduction <clears throat> requires mixing of genes, mixing of genetic information, forming new combinations. Um, Mother Nature um, kind of, how should I say that? Experiments have shown that whenever the, the going gets rough, so the environmental conditions are not favorable, um, those organisms and we are mainly talking, you know, unicellular organisms that can do both, they will switch to sexual reproduction. And why is that? Because the more uh, diverse cards you have in the in the game of evolution, the more chances you have as a species, not as an individual, as a species, to have a combination that will work well in whatever new conditions there are. So, um, again, the um, sexual reproduction increases genetic diversity, and when protozoans do that, that can lead to very complex life cycles. And again, um, you know, this is much easier... Uh, understood if you look at the um, figures um, explaining that but there are you know all kinds of cycles that can be haploid so haploid means cells that have half of the genetic uh, content and this is for example if you think about human the haploid cells would be the reproductive cells such as the sperm and an egg because they have only half of the uh, the chromosomes there only one of each chromosome. so that way when they meet the other uh, reproductive cell, they can form the whole diploid cell. So again, in these kinds of um, uh, sexual life cycles of protozoan, you can, you can see all kinds of you know haploid and, and diploid uh, stages. Regarding structure, again, we said that the structures of protozoan can be very complex. So in addition to those generic eukaryotic cell um, cell structures, they may have some specialities. So for example, the pellicle, this is an added. A structure made of proteins just inside the plasma membrane, which is um, kind of provide rigidity to the cell. Um, some of them have multiple layers of cytoplasm under the membrane, which can form a little bit more external or outer layer called the ectoplasm and an inner layer called the endoplasm. endoplasm. Um, for feeding, you know, some... Protozoans may have uh, basically a mouth, and uh, this is called the cytostome. So, this is a specialized structure for taking in the food through phagocytosis and an anus in the sense of a specialized structure to exocytose the waste called the cytoprop. Um, there are, you know, in some protozoans, the cilia are going to help kind of moving in. They are sweeping in food particles into that cytostome, which would be the mouth of the protozoan. There are all kinds of flagella or cilia. We talked about how cilia were unique to um, eukaryotic cells, and the flagella of eukaryotes are different from bacteria, but the, the, the function is the same it's for locomotion. Um, pseudopods. Uh, pseudopods literally mean false feet. And when you think about amoebas or even, you know, white blood cells, which are not protozoan, but just so it, it's something that helps um, cells move by kind of extending the cytoplasm to one side, and then they drag the rest of the, of the cell with them. Additional kind of interesting structures is um, for example contractive vacuoles so this can be found in um, aquatic some aquatic protozoans that it's like this vacuole like contract and they can use to move water out of the cell to to regulate their osmosis Uh, mitochondria which are you know very generic eukaryotic cell organelles in some parasites they may not exist or sometimes they are you know attached to other structures so again you can find all kinds of interesting structures in the um, in the protozoan world so it's not as simple as you know they have the same structure of all cells you can find very interesting um, modification Protozoans can be divided into so-called supergroups, and we are going to look at three major supergroups, which um, include some of the most medically relevant protozoans, and these would be amoebozoan, chromalveolata, and excavata, and amoebozoan, as the name indicates, include amoebas, and the movement that is typical of this group of protozoans are pseudopods, so this is kind of when you know, the false feet, the one side of the cytoplasm kind of flows, extends to one side, and then kind of moves the whole organism. Among the medically important uh, examples, we have the genus Entamoeba, specifically Entamoeba histolytica, which is one of those cyst-forming uh, orga- organisms and can cause amoebic dysentery. Another group is acantamoeba. This can cause a corneal inflammation and even blindness. It's actually very relevant in the developing world. And neglera faleri, which you may have heard in the news as the brain-eating amoeba, it is um, a distant relative of the amoebozoa. And, you know, it is a very serious infection very hard to detect and by the time it is detected it it has can become very deadly. I just wanted to mention in this group the um um the I amoebozoa mean, so group there is the group of the so-called slime molds and they you you can look in youtube for slime mold videos and they are really really interesting because they or individual cells but then sometimes they can form this multi-cellular structures which looks like a slog and then they form a fruiting body and um, the interesting thing about the, um, the slime molds they can be used by scientists to study how you know this um, well, the process called cell differentiation works so um, when when you look at more complex organisms, cells have different functions, and they this we all start as one cells, and then cells eventually differentiate into their own very like say niche-like activities. And some um and this kind of organisms are very good because they once they come together and form this multicellular. Fruiting bodies. Some cells we do certain things, and other cells we do other things. And how this is, you know, how this happens is much easier to study in an organism such as slime mold. The second group is called the chrome alveolata, and um, includes a group called the Apicomplexans, and then also ciliates, diatoms, and dinoflagellates, and those the two last ones, diatoms and dinoflagellates, we are going to talk about when we talk algae. Epicomplexin are parasites. They can be intracellular or extracellular, and the name comes because they have something called an apical complex at the end of the cell. This is a concentration of organelles, vacuoles, and microtubuli that allows the parasite to enter the um, the host cell. They have Complex life cycles, and that includes something called the sporozoite, which is the, um, the infectious stage of the life cycle. And the major example of epicomplexa is Plasmodium, which is the, um, the microbe that causes malaria. Others are toxoplasma, which causes toxoplasmosis, and toxoplasmosis, you may be aware of, this is something that, this is an infection that is um, transmitted uh, by cats, it's rodents and cats, and usually doesn't affect you know, adult individuals very much, but can be very uh, dangerous to development of the fetus, so that's why... Um, you know, pregnant females are not supposed to be much in touch with cats. And another one, it's called the cryptosporodium, which causes cryptosporidosis. Another uh, group among the Emma um, is the cilius, as the name says, you know, they can, they have cilia, and this is a large um, a large group, maybe, you know, when your previous studies, you have seen little paramecium, if you've done some kind of wet mount observations, so they, in general, don't tend to be parasitic, one, exa- one ex- exception is Balantidium coli, so this is the only parasitic cilia that affects humans by causing intestinal issues. And last but not least, we have the supergroup Excavata. And Excavata is, um, this includes primitive eukaryotes in many uh, parasites with uh, limited metabolic abilities. So remember that when we have a parasite, parasites tend to use the resources of the host. So sometimes they may, um, you know, downgrade their own metabolic activities because they simply just take those of their host. And the name has to do with a a depression on the surface of the cell called an excavate. And there are a number of groups in them, and some notorious and infamous excavata could be Giardia lamblia. So Giardia is, um, you know, one of the major causes of diarrhea and it's very common in you know hikers backpackers etc and also trypanosoma so the uh, trypanosomes are parasitic pathogens and there are a few um, species that cause Diseases, for example, we have Trypanosoma brucei, which causes African trypanosomiasis, also called African sleeping sickness, and Trypanosoma cruzi, which causes American trypanosomiasis, or Chagas disease. And these tropical diseases are spread by insect bites. Something that is really interesting to see in um, Trypanosoma when we compare them to Plasmodium so remember plasmodium causes malaria is that in malaria the uh, parasite actually is inside the red blood cells while in trypanosomiasis the uh, parasite is outside the red blood cells and this is very easy to observe when you look at um, blood smears. The next group of eukaryotic microbes to um, explore is parasitic helminths. And this, this has been this contradictory thing that, like, you know, microorganisms are those too small to see with the naked eye, but parasitic helmets are actual animals. And they are included in the study of microbiology because many species of these worms are identified by their microscopic eggs and larvae. There are two major groups of parasitic helminths, the roundworms, also called nematodum, and flatworms, called platyhelminths. Um, Of those many species, about half are parasitic, and we have, you know, some very important human pathogens. Looking more specifically at this group of animals, they, they are multicellular and have organ systems. However, as we were saying before, parasitic species often kind of downgrade their abilities because they are just taking the host resources. So they may have limited digestive tracts, nervous system, and locomotor abilities, meaning they don't need to move. They just need to attach, and then they, especially if they end in a GI tract, they just exploit the resources, the food coming their way. Parasitic forms, they have very often reproductive cycles, lots of complexity, several life stages, and more than a type of host. Starting with the phylum nematoda, so these are the roundworms. It's a large, diverse group, more than 15,000 species, and some of them are very known. Human parasites, the worms are unsegmented, and they have a full digestive system. So even when they are parasitic, they do, they do have the whole uh, digestive system, some are common intestinal parasites, and for example, we have Ascaris lumbricoides. This is the largest nematode intestinal parasite found on humans, and the females may be you know, longer than one meter, which is very large. Um, Ascaris lumbricoides, very widespread. It, widespread, they exist even in developed Nations although luckily it's relatively uncommon in the U.S. Another um, known uh, nematoda is the pinworm. So pinworm is Enterobius vermicularis. This is very common in the U.S. It causes sleeplessness and itching around the anus because the female goes down in the evening um, to the anus to lay their eggs. And um, another one very uh, known also is heartworm. So this causes infections mostly in dogs, of cats. And it's, uh, the name of the nematode is Dirophilaria imitis and it's transmitted by mosquitoes. We have also trichinellosis, also called trichinosis. It's caused by trichinella spiralis, and this is the reason why you are not supposed to undercook your uh, pork meat, because they can, if, if, if it's undercooked, then the larvae can survive, and they can be, you know, in in muscles, and infection can cause fever, muscle pains, so and digestive system problems. Moving on to the flatworms, so this is plathihelminths, and the group includes flukes, tapeworms, and turbularians, and the flukes and tapeworms are medically important. Parasites, so flukes are non-segmented flatworms, they have something called an oral sucker, and attach the inner walls of intestines, large lungs, large blood vessels of the liver, and they have very complex life cycles. Examples, we had the liver flukes, intestinal flukes, and the oriental lung fluke. Schistosomiasis is caused by schistosoma mansoni, hematobium, and japonicum, which are found in freshwater snails. And how they infect, the immature forms burrow through the skin into the blood, they migrate to the lungs, then to the liver and other organs, and causes anemia, malnutrition, fever, abdominal pain, and sometimes can even lead to death. The other group of uh, platyhelminths with medical interest are the tapeworms also called cestode, and these are segmented and many of these have something called the sucker of hooks at the head the head is called the skull sco- so they use these suckers or hooks to attach the wall of the small intestine and we were saying that they were segmented so the segments contained reproductive structures and these detach when the gametes are fertilized and then you get these gravid segments with the eggs. The eggs go through um, a series of changes in this intermediate host and then eventually are being eaten by the definitive host and then they become the adult tapeworms in the host digestive system. We have tenia. Atenea saginata is the beef tapeworm, Atenea solium, the pork tapeworm. So they enter humans through ingestion of undercooked, contaminated um, uh, food. Now, the beef te- tapeworm is relatively benign. It can cause digestive problems and sometimes allergic reactions, the uh, pork tapeworm can cause more serious problems if the larvae go to other tissues from the intestine. So they actually can enter the central nervous system. Moving on, the next group is fungi. These are heterotrophic, which means that they need to get their energy and carbon from organic sources, and also saprozoic. Saprozoic means that they feed on decaying material, and that makes them like the recyclers of the universe. We have, um, you know, macroscopic mushrooms and mold, and then we have microscopic yeast. So yeast are unicellular uh, fungi, and many of the spores are also microscopic. So that's one of the reasons that fungi are included within the field of microbiology. So let's look at the general characteristics of fungi. So The uh, most multicellular fungal bodies, commonly called the molds, are made of filaments called hyphae. So this is H-Y-P-H-A-E. So hyphae can form a network, a tangled network called the mycelium. And then that mycelium is going to form the, the body of fleshy fungi. That body is called the talus. And this hyphae, remember the hyphae are the filaments, they may have walls between the cells or not. If they have walls between the cells, we call it the septate hyphae. And if they don't, then they call it non septate hyphae. In contrast to the molds, the yeast are unicellular uh, fungi. And remember that yeast per se is not a taxonomical term, it just means that it's a unicellular. Um, uh, fungus. They can divide asexually, and this is by a process called budding. Budding means that this smaller daughter cell um, kind of buds off. And some of them can be what we call dimorphic. Dimorphic fungi means that they may have more than one appearance during their life cycle. Now this is a medic- medical importance. For example, dimorphic fungi can be can have the, the yeast form, which remember it's kind of unicellular round, they look like cells, or molds, and molds are going to be filaments. For example, they can change their appearance due to environmental changes, such as availability of nutrients, or fluctuation in temperatures. So one example is candida. Candida is the, um, you know, it's a fungus that causes all kinds of human infections, and it grows as a mold at colder temperatures, such as 25 Celsius, which would be 77, but once it reaches warmer temperatures, and that would be body temperatures, such as 37 degrees, 98.6 Fahrenheit, then they can spread uh, more wider. You know, if you're a yeast cell, it's easier to, to move around. And another example of um, dimorphic fungi or dimorphic yeast is histoplasma, which causes histoplasmosis. You may recall that when we talked about general structures of of cells and then in the case of prokaryote, the cell wall, it was peptidoglycan for bacteria. And then for um, archaea, we had either pseudomurane or no cell wall at all. And then we said, well, for eukaryotes, there are different cell walls, and they are going to vary uh, depending on the group. For example, plants have cellulose cell walls. Fungi also have cell walls, but these contain kitten. And so kitten is also a polysaccharide, but it's different from the cellulose found in, cell, in you know, plants and many protists. Also, animals have cholesterol in the cell membranes, we know that, but fungi have a different sterone. They are called their gosterols. So, remember what we were talking about how more difficult it was to find targets for drugs in eukaryotes compared to prokaryotes because prokaryotic cells have all these different structures and different components compared to eukaryotic cells and eukaryotic cells are more similar to our cells so most drugs that would affect eukaryotic cells may also damage human cells Well, the presence of ergosterol which is different it's very unique to fungi we don't have ergoster or we have cholesterol, you know, plasma membrane can be exploded as target for antifungal drugs. The reproduction and life cycles of fungi are quite complicated, so I recommend that you check it out in the textbook. It basically goes through um, both sexual and asexual reproductive cycles, and they produce spores along the way, and again, it can be very complicated and some of these characteristics of how they reproduce and what kind of spores they make is going to help with their classification Um, Fungi in general are very diverse and they have seven major groups but um, we are going to focus on those groups that have a, a medical importance for human medicine and we are going to start with the zygomycota or zygomycetes so these are uh, saprophytes so again they they feed on decaying material and they have this special spores called zygospores for sexual reproduction these um Fungi are important for food science and also as crop pathogens. So even if they don't affect us directly, they don't cause human diseases directly, they do affect humans indirectly by affecting food sources. So for example, we have Rhizopus stolonifer, which is bread mold and also causes a rice infection, as well as mucor. Um, mucor is actually pathogenic for humans. It can, it can cause necrotizing infection. Necrosis means that the, the tissue dies. But this is not very common because most of the species of mucor cannot uh, live at temperatures found in mammalian bodies. So that was zygomycetes. The next one is ascomycota. And ascomycota include fungi that we use as foods, such as edible mushrooms, truffles, etc. But others are actually causes of food spoilage, so bread molds and other plant pathogens. There are a few human pathogens here, and the name comes from their spores, so their sexual spores are ascospores. And examples besides the bread molds that we mentioned before, Among Escomaikota, we have the genus Aspergillus, which are important causes of allergy and infection, but they are also useful in research and the production of some fermented alcoholic beverages, such as Japanese sake. Now, something that you may have heard in the news, um, it comes up uh, once in a while, it's about aflatoxins. So Aspergillus... Flavus specifically, which can infect or you know contaminate nuts and stored grains, it produces an aflatoxin, which is both a toxin and a carcinogen, so it can cause cancer. So um, you may have heard, you know, don't eat moldy peanuts or moldy, don't use moldy grains, and this is because of the danger of aflatoxin. And one very famous Ascomycota is penicillin, so the penicillin mold produces the antibiotic of penicillin. Um, we have also many species that are medically important. For example, Trichophyton, Microsporum, Epidermophyton. These are dermatophytes. So what it means is that these are fungi that can cause skin infections, and some of these are athlete's food, jog itch, and ringworm. Then we have blastomyces, dermatitis, which is a dimorphic fungus, so one of those that can change its shape uh, depending on the temperature. And this can cause blastomycosis, which is a respiratory infection. If left untreated, it can you know, lead to death. We also have histoplasma capsulatum, which is associated with birds and bats in the Ohio and Mississippi River valleys. Coccidioides in metis causes valley fever, and then we have candida, again it's, a, it's a, another of those dimorphic fungi. So candida albicans is the most common cause of vaginal and other yeast infection. It's part of the normal microbiota of the skin, intestine, genital tract, and ear. And some of the ascomycetes um, can cause plant diseases such as the air gut infections and powdery mildews another very important ascomycetes is the saccharomyces yeast so that would be for example saccharomyces cerevisiae baker's yeast which are also um, used for brewing for example beer then we have basidiomycota or basidiomycetes So these are fungi that have a, uh, so their spores are called basidiospores. Remember how we said that the uh, the type of spores are going to, you know, help differentiating the different groups of of, um, fungi. These are very important as decomposers and also as food, including rouse, horse puffballs, and mushrooms. But we have also some pathogenic ones, for example, Cryptococcus neoformans. This is a fungus commonly found as a yeast in the environment which can cause very serious lung infections when inhaled by individuals with weakened immune system. And the fourth group that we are going to talk about are the microsporidia. So microsporidia are unicellular fungi that are obligate intracellular parasites. Their cells actually um, are missing a number of organelles, such as mitochondria, peroxisome, and centrioles. But they have the capacity to you know, gain entry into the cell and again be an intracellular parasite. Some of these um, microsporidia are human pathogen, and infections with them are called microsporodiosis. The next group to look at are algae. And algae are... Uh, photosynthetic eukaryotes, and they can be unicellular or multicellular. They are extremely important in the production of organic matter and oxygen. They are basically like plants, but aquatic. And we are going to find some that are microscopic, so microscopic algae are like diatoms and dinoflagellates. And my macroscopic is what we know as kelp or seaweed. Now, algae in general tend not to be pathogenic. But sometimes they produce toxins that can be eaten by other organisms, and eventually they can make it to the human food sources. So for example, diatoms produce a toxin called domoic acid, dinoflagellates produce neurotoxins and those, again, the small... Algae can be eaten by other organisms, the small fish, the big fish, um, shellfish. So eventually, it can reach us, and as it accumulates in bigger and bigger animals, you know, the the amount of the toxin increases. So the neurotoxins produced by dinoflagellate can cause diseases such as paralytic shellfish poisoning and ciguatera. I do want to mention that. The agar that we use in the lab for culturing microbes, it is produced by an algae, by seaweed. So we are very grateful for their contribution. And last but not least, I want to talk about lichens. And lichens are a symbiotic relationship between something that can do photosynthesis. So that could be a green algae or cyanobacteria and a fungus so they provide each other with benefits one with the photosynthesis the other is more like the structural and nutritional support and they are slow growing can live for centuries and they can be very beautiful looking so this is the end of the chapter dedicated to the, the eukaryotes of microbiology thank you